Well, just in case you are visiting with us this morning and haven't been around the last couple of weeks, uh, we're focusing on Psalm 119. This is our fourth and perhaps final sermon on Psalm 119. I'm, I'm leaving the door open, leaving the door open for the possibility of uh, an additional sermon, but really I think I'm going to follow up with a couple of sermons from the New Testament that apply some of the things that we've been seeing in Psalm 119. And what we're going to do this morning is look at both Psalm 119 and the Gospels in the New Testament to see the same content, even some of the same wording in both, and be encouraged by this. Earlier this week, I heard part of a conversation that included Paul Washer. Paul Washer is a, a pretty well-known preacher and evangelist. He leads uh, Heart Cry Ministries, so he's, he's big in international missions now and uh, sending gospel preachers around the world. And the conversation was about pastors and churches who describe themselves as reformed. And uh, Paul Washer said something along these lines, it's... it's it's not a direct quote, but it's pretty darn close. And he, he went back and he explained that the reformers didn't want to be reformers. They just wanted to be biblical. They just wanted to be biblical. So you are not reformed simply because you adopt a particular academic view of sovereign grace soteriology. You are following in the spirit of the reformers when you are trying to take every aspect of your thought, your doctrine, your disposition, your life, your family, your church, and submitting it to what is written. And that really had Psalm 119 ringing in my ears at that point because we've been focusing on that which is written. I think that's the spirit of the Reformation that we want to have. We, we just want to be biblical. The psalmist who wrote Psalm 119 certainly wants us to be biblical, doesn't he? And he wants everyone who reads and sings Psalm 119 to see the glorious blessing of God's Word so as to fully embrace every aspect of God's Word for all of life. That's what we're after. I've been saying it this way. God wants His Word to take over our lives. God wants His Word to take over our lives. That's how Paul Washer describes the Reformers. The spirit of the Reformers was pietism. That this word would make them pious. That they would live out this word. For Christians to be taken over by the word of God. To have it deep in our hearts so that when it comes out in our thoughts and our attitudes, it comes out in our words and our deeds so that our lives, our families, our churches, and everything would shout the truth of God's word and nothing else. That and nothing else part reminds me of something else I once heard in a sermon. It was this phrase, planned neglect. I don't remember who said it, but I remember the phrase. And, and it's, uh, at first it sounds like something that I don't want to be accused of. Planned neglect. But this is what he meant. He planned ahead of time to neglect anything that was not from the Word of God. That's what he planned to neglect. Psalm 119 is 176 verses of planned neglect. It's all about the Word of God, and it's glorious. It's especially glorious when we see it carried over into the life of Jesus in the Gospels. And that's what I want you to see this morning. The Word of God is described in Psalm 119, reflected in the Gospels, because I believe that doing so will reveal four steps to having God's Word take over your life. You can follow along on the 
sermon outline on the worship bulletin if you like. First, store up God's word in your whole heart. Second, seek and obey God's word from your heart. Third, meditate on God's word in your heart. And four, speak God's word with zeal from your heart. And that's where I want us to begin. Let's look at Psalm 119. Find verse 11. It says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I have stored up your word in my heart. When you hear that phrase, does that make you think of anyone in the Gospels? Does that phrase make you think of anyone in the Gospels? Turn to Luke chapter 2 and verse 19. And you know that early on we're in the birth narrative of Christ. We're in the Christmas story, if you will. And here's this one verse. Luke chapter 2 verse 19. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Mary treasured up the word of God in her heart. What had just happened? What had just happened before this? I won't read the account. I'll just summarize it very quickly. Uh, but she is, uh, the, the, the shepherds have come and visited and told her all the things that the angels said. And of course, angels are messengers of God. And so Mary is treasuring up the very word of God that came to the angels, passed on through the shepherds to her. In fact, we can even take that a little further back. She's pondering up all these things, even from the time when the angel first spoke to her and said, you'll give birth to a son. You'll name him Jesus. Mary treasured the word in her heart. The words spoken by the angels, relayed to her by the shepherds. And then if we were to follow up just after that, in the few paragraphs after that, we see Mary and Joseph obeying the word of God. I won't read the passage, but we can recount what Mary and Joseph did after that. They had Jesus circumcised on the eighth day, according to the word. They went to the temple for Mary's ceremonial purification, according to the law. They gave the required sacrifice, a pair of turtle doves for a firstborn son, according to the word. And so we should recognize that their obedient acts that immediately followed Mary's storing up God's word in her heart follow what the psalmist says. He says, I've stored up your word in my heart so that I will not sin against you. In fact, do the opposite. Be obedient. Storing up and treasuring God's word in our hearts leads us not to sin, but to obedience. And we know the opposite is true also, don't we? In John chapter 5, you might want to go ahead and turn there. In John chapter 5, Jesus is already in Jerusalem. He's performing miraculous signs that identify him as the Messiah whom God promised to send in the Old Testament. He's even forgiving people's sins. John, the author, tells us in verse 18 that the Jewish leaders are already plotting to kill Jesus. Murder would be a sin because he was breaking the Sabbath and he was calling God his Father and he was making himself equal with God, which we all know to be right, but they thought was wrong. So in order that they, even his enemies, might be saved, it says that in the text, Jesus explains to them that the miraculous works of the Father that Jesus is performing serve as God's testimony to them that Jesus is the Messiah, the one whom God promised to send to them in his Old Testament word. When you see a man doing these things, you're looking at the Messiah. And so here's what he says to them in John chapter 5, beginning in verse 36. For the works that the Father has given to me accomplish 
to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And I'm wondering if you ever wondered why Jesus did all those miraculous healings. Casting out demons, giving sight to the blind, even raising children from the dead. Is it because all Christians are supposed to do those same kinds of things today? No. The Father gave Jesus those particular works to do that no one else could do. So that when Jesus saw Je- when the Jews saw Jesus doing those particular works, they would know Jesus is the one the Father sent. Pick up in verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. And yet, his voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. God did bear witness to Mary and the baby Jesus, the one whom he is sending, didn't he? He did. We just read about it. Yes, through the angels. And God did bear witness to these Jews who were plotting to kill Jesus. And Jesus is the one whom he was sent. Didn't he say that? Yes. What's the difference between Mary and these Jews, these Pharisees? Well, Jesus tells them to their face in verse 38. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. The Pharisees and the Jews who reject Jesus have not stored up God's word in their hearts. What's the obvious evidence of that? They don't believe that Jesus is the one whom God sent. See, God himself has borne witness to them about Jesus, and yet they have not heard his voice or seen his form, even though Jesus is the form of God standing before them and the voice of God speaking to them. They think they will find life in the Scriptures. You see, they have stored up God's Word in their minds. They were pretty good at that. And yet they're rejecting Jesus. They have not stored up God's Word in their hearts, so as to obey him. The Father has borne witness to Jesus by his works recorded for us in his New Testament word, and the Old Testament scriptures have borne witness to Jesus as well. The Pharisees, who have not treasured God's word in their hearts, go on sinning against God, plotting murder in their hearts. But Mary, who has treasured up God's word in her heart, not only avoids sin, but sings this song from her heart in Luke chapter 1, verse 6. You might remember it. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in my Savior. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. God's word will not take over our lives by accident or happy coincidence. We will not stumble into righteous obedience. We must commit to store up his word in our hearts that we might not sin against him, but rather follow him. Follow him. Which takes us to a story you're familiar with in Mark's gospel. It's in Mark chapter 10. Turn there if you would. Mark chapter 10. I'll begin reading in verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, 
What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, I would say that this man obviously wants to follow Jesus. We might even imagine that he looks like the person described in the opening verses of Psalm 119, verses 1 and 2. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. I mean, look at the story. He searches out Jesus. And when he finds him, he runs. He doesn't walk, he runs up as fast as he can to Jesus. He obviously is seeking Jesus. And he gives testimony to Jesus in his greeting, calling Jesus good teacher. Even Jesus acknowledges this when he says, why do you call me good? When you know that no one is good except God alone. Jesus doesn't tell him that he's wrong. Jesus is good. Jesus doesn't reject being described as good. Jesus acknowledges that the man's testimony of him is the truth of God, because he is indeed the Son of God. And what does this man want from Jesus? He wants the blessing of God. Just as the psalmist in Psalm 119 starts out, blessed is, blessed is, this man wants the blessing of God. This Jewish man already knows that the word of life is only found in God's word. He knows that Psalm 119, 25 says, give me life according to your word. And yet he runs up to Jesus, comes to a dead stop, falls to his knees before Jesus and asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what does Jesus, the good teacher, do when he hears that question? He takes him straight to the law. He takes him straight to the law. Jesus knows, Psalm 119, verse 1, Blessed are those who walk in the law of the Lord. So, Jesus says to the man in verse 19 and 20, Excuse me. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Wow. Wow. On first appearance, this man looks like a really solid candidate to inherit eternal life, doesn't he? I mean, serious. He has walked in the last six of the Ten Commandments since he was a youth. Who among us can say that? That's impressive. But the young man still has a problem. What's his problem? Pick up in verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. What's the young man's problem? Jesus looked at him and in love told him to give up his treasure on earth and he would inherit treasure in heaven. That is, eternal life and every blessing of God. But instead of being heartened by Jesus' instructions, which he asked for, he was disheartened by Jesus' answer to his question. This man's heart was wrapped 
tightly around his worldly treasures, so tightly that he would not follow Jesus and inherit the heavenly treasure he said he was seeking. You see, his problem is that he was not seeking Jesus with his whole heart after all. He was willing to keep the last six commandments dealing with the relationship to others. Those are the horizontal commands, if you will. He was not willing to keep the first four commandments that govern our relationship with God, the vertical commandments, if you will, beginning with the first command of God in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, that you shall have no other gods before me. But he had gods before him, didn't he? And it's summarized by Jesus' command in Mark chapter 12, verse 30, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. All of it. And so the psalmist has already told us centuries before, blessed is the one who does that, who seeks Jesus with his whole heart. Before we move on to the next verses, I want to make two comments based on this Psalm 119, verses 1 and 2, the, what we read in, in this young man's life. My first comment is especially relevant if you are a new Christian or if you are new to Christianity and you're genuinely seeking to become a Christian. You may be like this young man. He's really, really excited about this great opportunity before him. You may be really, really excited about this great opportunity before you by running to Jesus and having eternal life, and, you, and it is a great opportunity. And like this young man, you're doing everything you know to do to be a disciple of Jesus. You're reading your Bible, praying to God, gathering with believers to worship on the Lord's day. You genuinely want to do all of the right things and are trying really hard not to make any mistakes. You're probably thinking in those terms. You're, you're probably thinking in, in those very things. I'm, I'm not exactly sure yet what this Christian thing is exactly, but I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm trying not to make any mistakes. Now, doing good works is right. As you seek Jesus, you're discovering many new things to do, things that honor Jesus, and you're probably finding many things you need to stop doing, uh, things that are sinful and put up a, a barrier between you and Jesus. So, yes, keep Keep making those changes that the Holy Spirit is convicting you to make. Putting away the old sinful life and turning to a new life of righteousness in Christ. But, but, do them on your way to seeking Him. Jesus Himself. You are not just going for behavior modification and trying to change the things you do. You will change the things you do, but you are looking for a relationship with the person, the Lord Jesus Christ. You're giving your heart to the Savior. You're seeking Him with all your heart, obeying His word out of love for Him. Exercise your faith by walking in Jesus. No longer set your affections on the world and the things in the world. Rather, set all of your affections on Jesus. Because blessed are those who seek him with their whole heart. I just thought of another comment, really an explanation as to why this works the way it does. So, so I have three comments to make, or I have two comments. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to insert an explanation in between the two of them. How does that sound? 
why do we seek Jesus first, and then, and when we seek him, we find ourselves walking in obedience to him? Why would we do that first? Why not just put all of our effort into keeping the law? Why not do that first? It's not that the law is not important. It's that the law does not save sinners. The law does not save. It was never intended to. The law shows us that we are sinners. You only know that you're breaking the 60 mile per hour speed limit once you see a sign that says the speed limit's 60. That's how the law works. Based on our own, we cannot keep the law. And if you want to begin obeying God's law today, you're already a lawbreaker. It's too late for you to be saved by keeping the law perfectly all of your life because you're already a sinner. But listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Did you hear that? Jesus himself has fulfilled the law. He has perfectly kept the law. He has perfectly walked out the law without a single mistake, without a single sin. He is himself the complete embodiment of the law of God. So there is a way, and only one way, by which we can walk in the law. That's the phrase the psalmist uses, walk in the law. And it is by walking in Jesus. There's the connection. And we do that by faith. Saving faith in Jesus that brings us to a saving relationship with God. That's why the psalmist is right. Blessed are those who seek Him with their whole hearts. And we continue to seek Him and to give Him our hearts and to obey Him and He gives us life. Jesus is the answer to the ultimate question of life. So my second comment, which is for those of you who are believers but not sure to do with the word blameless in Psalm 119 verse 1. You noticed it when we read it, didn't you? Maybe you scratched your head a little bit. Blessed are those whose way is blameless. There it is. In the very first verse of the longest psalm, the longest chapter in the Bible, how can I be blessed, you might wonder, if I can't get past the first verse of the psalm? I'm to be blameless. So we look for ways to get past the word blameless. You might say, well, you know, the psalm is ancient Hebrew poetry, and maybe, maybe that word, blameless, doesn't really mean blameless. It does. Or you might, wrongly, conclude that somehow you are now perfect and without sin. But you and I both know that's not true. So let me explain the difference between blameless and faultless. We should understand these terms this way. To be blameless is to be without blame. That is, we're innocent of wrongdoing. That's blameless. Everyone who walks by faith in Jesus Christ has been justified, that is, declared innocent of wrongdoing. Because Jesus perfectly kept the law and took God's just penalty for our sin upon himself, satisfying God's justice. 
That's the person that the psalmist is describing in Psalm 119, blessed are those whose way is blameless. Now, to be faultless means to be without fault. That is, to be free from defect or error. As we walk in the law, as we walk in Christ, we still don't do so perfectly. Our walk is not faultless. Our Christian lives are not free from moral defect and error. We make mistakes. We even sin. But in Christ we remain blameless. There's even a great mechanism in place for us to make necessary corrections along the way. It's called repentance. When the law does its job and convicts us of sin, we confess our sin to God and we turn away from our sin and we turn again to Christ, the Word of God, and we're forgiven. Forgiveness is applied to us. You see, that is seeking Christ with our whole heart. Keeping our testimony of Christ, our Savior. We must store up God's Word in our hearts so that we will not sin against Him. And we must seek Jesus with our whole heart so that we will walk in obedience to His Word. We know it's a flawed obedience, but we also know that we are justified by faith in Him. That's why we seek Him. He is the very righteousness of God whom we need. It's Jesus and His righteousness that we need to also to meditate on all of our lives. All of our lives. Keeping, keeping His testimonies, keeping His Word in front of us all of our lives. The psalmist meditates in Psalm 119, verse 37. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and all faithfulness. It's true. God himself is righteous. And God's word is righteous. And, and yet we live in a world that's filled with unrighteousness. Some of it's even our own. And it's glorious to meditate on the righteousness of God. It's glorious. After, after staring at a mud puddle, it's glorious to look up to a beautiful blue sky. Maybe a few white puffy clouds on the periphery and a, and a bright yellow sun. Think about Jesus, who was with his righteous Father in heaven and then surrounded by unrighteousness on earth. We might say he's gone slumming. How he must have loved here on earth meditating on the Father's righteousness, thinking about it in his mind, mulling it over, picturing it. He even calls him his righteous Father in John chapter 17, verse 25. Jesus goes to pray. You know this is chapter 17, his high priestly prayer, and how does he, how does he address his Father? Oh, righteous Father. Oh, righteous Father. Even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that you have sent to me. You see, in Christ, we have the righteousness of God, and we know the God of righteousness. What a passport. What a passport to know God. The psalmist meditates in 
Psalm 119, verse 30, I have chosen the way of faithfulness. And in verse 86, all your commandments are faithful. And in verse 90, your faithfulness continues through all generations. I don't know about you, but one of the things that causes me to regret is the many times and the ways that I've proven myself unfaithful. It causes me regret. Certainly when I've been unfaithful to God, but even when I've been unfaithful to my family, to my church, the people I love the most. So the depth of comfort in John 14, verse 6, is a balm to my soul. Jesus tells his disciples, I am the way. I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the faithful way that the psalmist was writing about. We meditate on his faithful words. And there will never be a time when we find him not faithful. In Psalm 119, verse 77, the psalmist meditates in verse 77. Let your mercy come to me, that I may live. Your law is my delight. This is an amazing verse to connect with the Gospels. Think about it. We delight in God's law. The word here is Torah. Remember back to our first sermon. We delight in God's law. The word here is Torah. It's God's authority. And we beg God for his mercy. And we live under his authority because he gives us mercy. So there is certainly a recognition of our salvation here, but I think there's more to point out than just that. Consider Jesus' words as he gives the law in the Sermon on the Mount, after telling the people that they are to love their enemies, he gives this authoritative command in Luke chapter 6, verse 36. You are to be merciful even as your Father is merciful. You are to be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Again, we're tempted to brush that off, reasoning that we will one day be made merciful and perfect and holy as God is one day. And that is true. But we let ourselves off the hook of actually trying to become more merciful in this life. And that's what that saying means. But I don't think that's all the psalmist is saying. When he prays, let your mercy come to me. I think he really means it. Lord, let your mercy come to me. He desires not just to live by the mercy of God, but to have the mercy of God. To be a merciful person. And to grant mercy to those people around him. To others. What a thing to meditate on and desire. To actually be a more merciful person. As Christians, we are to have this need to be merciful. We're to desire this mercy to come to us and be in us. And then use it mercifully. The psalmist meditates in Psalm 119, verse 161. He says, 
Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in all of your words. That's just one of five times that he brings up persecution in the psalm, and it is clearly fulfilled according to Jesus' own words in John chapter 15, verse 25. You might want to go ahead and turn back to John. Find chapter 15. Let's read that section beginning in verse 18. Jesus says to his disciples, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. They hated me without a cause. The psalmist said, they hated me without a cause. Jesus says, they, they hated me without a cause. Jesus wants all of us to know ahead of time that we will bravely stand before our persecutors because our hearts stand in all of his word. That's applying the psalmist. If we have meditated on his righteousness, on his faithfulness, on his mercy in his word, we will stand. And if we will stand in the word that strengthens us through daily meditation, Jesus tells us to expect two things. Two things that the psalmist also knows. Look at Jesus' words in Luke chapter 12. Turn back and find Luke chapter 12. Beginning in verse 8. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who, does, who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you want to say. Two things. Two things, Jesus says. If we will acknowledge that we belong to Jesus before men in this life, Jesus will acknowledge before the Father that we belong to him. I mean, that's kind of what we're all expecting. It's the promise that he made. And should the time come that they bring us before earthly rulers and authorities, the Spirit will give us words to say. Now, flip back to the psalmist words in Psalm 119. The stanza beginning in verse 41. 
Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me. For I trust in your word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. I will keep your law continually forever and ever, and I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings, and shall not be put to shame. For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. So the psalmist knows, I will have an answer for those who hate me without cause. And the answer is the gospel. The good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I will have your word in my heart. And I will have your word in my mouth. And I will have your word on my lips so that I will speak your gospel. And regardless of the outcome of that particular encounter when it happens, because I have meditated on your statutes, I will not be put to shame. I will not be put to shame. And armed with those two consistent promises, Old Testament to New Testament, that will be kept by the Holy Spirit, we are ready to speak the gospel word from our hearts. I want to take you to Psalm 119, verse 139. The psalmist says, My zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words, I think he means that he's going to make them remember God's words. Jesus found himself in a similar situation at his first cleansing of the temple in John chapter 2. I want to turn back to John chapter 2. He took some cords, do you remember, and he fashioned his own whip. And he drove out the sellers and overturned the tables of the money changers. John records this in John chapter 2 beginning in verse 16. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. That's the obvious connection to Psalm 119. And look at what Jesus' zeal for the right worship of God prompts in the following verses when we pick up in verse 18. Look what flows out of it. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus, in effect, reveals the gospel of his death, burial, and resurrection in John chapter 2. He proclaims that he's the new temple of God. He didn't mean the stone temple. He meant the temple that his body that would be raised up in three days. No one understands it at that time, but later his disciples would remember. They'd remember his word. They'd remember the scriptures. And I want to pair that reflection from the psalm with the the very last verse of the psalm. Look at Psalm 119, the very last verse, verse 176. The psalmist ends, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. 
Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. Now, the psalmist uses the analogy of a sheep gone astray to describe himself as a wandering sheep who needs God's help to keep his commands. But what you're probably more familiar with, Jesus in the Gospels uses that same analogy to proclaim the gospel to spiritually lost sheep. In fact, Jesus paints the picture of himself as the good shepherd in the parable of the lost sheep in Luke chapter 15. Find Luke chapter 15. Let me read this in beginning in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after that one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing, And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who have no need for repentance. Jesus, again, reveals the Father's plan of salvation. To tax collectors and sinners on one side, to Pharisees and scribes on the other, the Father sent him to rescue his sheep. One by one. That was Jesus' mission. And In Luke chapter 19, you might remember, Jesus plucked Zacchaeus out of the crowd, plucked him out of a sycamore tree, if you will. He was a greedy little man, wasn't he? And Jesus blessed him by reminding him of the word of God that he had forgotten. And so in Luke chapter 19, verses 9 and 10, read, And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he, Zacchaeus, also is a son of Abraham. And then he tacks this on. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That was Jesus' mission, and Jesus has given his church that commission to seek and save the lost by speaking his gospel from deep within our hearts with zeal that consumes us. We share the gospel because we can't not share the gospel. That's having the word take over your heart. I want to end with a story. I've always liked this story. It's a story about a man with that kind of zeal. And his name was Ted Sherwood. Ted Sherwood was a a welterweight boxer in England back in the 30s. He fought 51 bouts between 1930 and 1931. And after after his boxing career, such as it was, he took to drink and he became a gutter alcoholic. Until one day he heard the gospel and he believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ted Sherwood was locally known as the boxer turned evangelist. And he was zealous for people to hear the gospel. When he preached, he, he would move about like the movements in a boxing ring when he preached the gospel. It must have been funny to look at. People would criticize him for his peculiar mannerisms as he preached, and he would reply, well, ain't I fighting the devil anyway? 
Ted tells the story of how one day he found himself walking through Hyde Park in London. Now, this is one of those places where you have open-air speakers. Uh, so people would go and stand on a soapbox and shout their arguments, gather a crowd to listen to them, shout their arguments, whether they're social or political or, or philosophical or theological. And Ted's zeal was burning within him as he heard all of the trash and the lies that were filling so many people's ears. And he desperately wanted to draw people away from these deceivers and to preach God's truth, his word to them. So he laid his big Bible on the ground and then he placed his overcoat over it so that no one could see what it was. And then he began jumping up and down on the coat, jumping up and down, working his way around and shouting, It's alive! It's alive! stamping on the coat. It's alive! And the crowd started running to see what was happening. And when enough people had left the other speakers and and Ted had gathered a large enough congregation, he threw off the overcoat and he picked up his Bible and he said, It's alive! It's alive! (laughs) Someone asked him, Well, Ted, what did you do next? He said, Oh, I told him how this book found me, dead in the graveyard of pollution, and how it imparted new life to old Teddy Sherwood, the debauched, drunken, blaspheming boxer. Let God's word take over your life. Store up God's word in your whole heart. Seek and obey God's word from your heart. Meditate on God's word in your heart. And speak God's word with zeal from your heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this. We hold it in our hands. We call it our Bible. It is your good and true word. It contains no errors. It never leads falsely. It's the word of life. And it's the word of truth. And it's the word that points us to the living word, your son Jesus Christ. Father, we're praying that you would, by the power of your spirit, make your word to take over our lives so that we would be your people of the word, shouting, It's alive, and so am I. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.